0: This is episode number 424 with Thais Gibson, The Impact of Attachment Trauma on Romantic Relationships. Hi everybody, I'm Sandy Weiner, and welcome to Last First Date Radio where we believe it is never too late for love and that a woman of value naturally attracts the respect and rewards she deserves in life and in love. And speaking of women of value, my book is now available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback, and it's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. And the book is filled with personal and client stories, with expert interviews like the one I'm having today with and 30 tips and exercises for stepping more fully into your value. So again, it's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. And this week's tip on becoming a woman of value is adapt a positive mindset. It is so essential to change your mindset around anything that you feel that you have a negative approach to. And it's amazing how that little shift can change how things happen for you. It may sound a little woo-woo to anybody who hasn't done this, but I know that I just finished teaching a course on online dating during the pandemic, and one of the main accountability commitments that people are making is to change their mindset towards online dating. So many of us go into online dating thinking it's horrible. All the losers are here. Only the good ones are all—they're all married, or you know, good-looking guys are all gay. You know, whatever whatever mindset you have and approach you have is what you're going to attract. And so I encourage you to look at one thing that you're really constantly looking at negatively and work on just shifting it to a more positive mindset. And before I bring Thais on, I just want to give a shout out to my Facebook group, Your Last First Date. It is a fantastic group with women who are all looking to grow towards their last first date. It's a positive focused group. It does not allow for people to just bash and be a victim. It's really a place to learn, to grow, to share the good and the, and the difficult challenges so that you can be on a path towards your last first date. So join us there. And now for my guest, Thais Gibson is an author, speaker, and co-creator of the Personal Development School She's best known for her contributing work and research on attachment theory and the impact of attachment trauma on our adult romantic relationships. She is the author author of The Attachment Theory Guide and her YouTube channel often focuses on educating people on how to subconsciously reprogram this area of their lives. Welcome to the show, Thais.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today.
0: I'm excited to have you and to talk about this really important topic. So let's begin with an explanation of attachment theory. What is it and how does it impact our romantic relationships?
1: So it's such an important topic and it's originally the work of John Bowlby. Um, But the analogy I like to use to best describe attachment theory is we basically have a subconscious set of rules and these rules are, are the way we learn in childhood to attach to our caregivers and we basically go into our adult lives with these set of rules at a subconscious level that we are bringing into relationships and these rules impact the way we give and receive love they impact our needs in a relationship our expectations our love languages and also they impact our emotional um, sort of set of feelings we're experiencing on a regular basis relative to the relationship as well as our core beliefs And you can sort of compare having a different attachment style to playing a board game with somebody else and you have a different rule book. And you can imagine all the sort of friction that will come up when you're playing with a different set of rules. And so it's so important that we learn to understand what our attachment style is and the subconscious set of rules that comes with our attachment style so that we can enter into relationships with an understanding of ourselves and our own needs and what we truly desire and what fills our cup and also so that we can connect with somebody else and understand their subconscious set of patterns. And it helps to save so much time that we would otherwise spend on potential conflict in relationships.
0: Hmm. Board game, that's an interesting one. I never thought of that, but that's that's a great way to explain it. We all, mm-hmm. you know, I think we, we all go through life thinking, everybody thinks the way we do, everybody approaches life the way we do. <clears throat> And this leads to a lot of assumptions and misunderstandings, and probably a lot of relationships that could have worked out that don't.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, our attachment style affects not just our romantic relationships. Obviously, that's a primary space that we're impacted, but it also impacts our friendships, our family relationships, our working relationships, like literally with our colleagues or our boss. So it sort of spreads out everywhere
0: yeah definitely so let's uh if you could just name the different attachment styles and and tell a little bit about each one that Absolutely. would be great
1: so we have four main attachment styles um the first one that we're all sort of trying to move towards is the securely attached person so somebody who's securely attached essentially learns in their childhood when they're attaching to their primary caregiver, so their mother, their father, or both parents play a role, Um, what happens is they basically learn that their feelings are worthy of being seen, heard, and understood, and that their needs are worthy of being met. And this is usually because at a very young age, they have, they have positive subconscious associations built into the way that their caregivers attach to them. So the caregivers make them feel safe. They make them feel connected. They make them feel like they can trust. They're reliable. They are consistent. When the child cries or expresses emotion, that emotion is not shamed or repressed, but it's actually tended to and seen and heard and valued. And so because this child's natural responses and the natural way that they're navigating the world basically is positively reinforced and their needs are met, they learn at a deep level that I am worthy because just me being, just me existing gets connection, gets closeness and is worthy of love. And so this individual basically grows up to feel like it's safe and healthy to express feelings and needs. And as a byproduct of that, they're able to, hold space for somebody else to express their feelings and needs, and they also learn that I am worthy as I am, and so they feel more comfortable connecting with other people, they trust more naturally, and they have a a greater sense of self-esteem as a byproduct of the way that they were taught to attach to their caregivers. And so in their adult lives, they're more likely to have lasting relationships, healthy relationships. They're more likely to communicate more effectively. And this is sort of the space that we're trying to get. This is our one secure attachment style. And then we have three insecurely attached styles. And this is your anxious preoccupied, your dismissive avoidant, and then in the middle, or sort of in the middle, if you can imagine it's on a continuum to a certain degree, you have fearful avoidant. And fearful avoidant is also sometimes referred to as anxious avoidant or disorganized attachment style. And so our dismissive avoidant on sort of one end of the attachment continuum is generally experiences in, in their childhood, some form of emotional neglect. And this can be like emotional neglect that flies under the radar, that you know the, the parents meet the physical needs, there's safety, there's there's closeness in the home, but their emotional needs are not met. You know, the, there's not space held for feelings, there aren't conversations about feelings, or maybe the caregivers are a little bit emotionally repressed themselves. And so they don't necessarily attune to their child very well. And so as a byproduct of this, this individual learns that when I express emotion, it basically gets consistently rejected in some form. And so emotional connection, emotional closeness, they start to subconsciously associate these things as being bad, as being painful, as being unsafe emotionally. And basically this individual goes up and grows up into their adult life to feel like closeness isn't very good. Emotional intimacy isn't very safe. And they usually, as a child, don't really have space to be able to go, okay, you know, my my caregivers, you know, your prefrontal cortex is not very developed. So they're, they're not looking at their caregivers going, oh, my caregivers are emotionally unavailable. And that's why i'm experiencing pain instead they usually have an experience of going wow i have this intrinsic part of me that wants this connection but it keeps getting rejected so there must be something wrong with me i must be defective at my core and so this individual usually carries those shame and defectiveness wounds into their adult lives and so here we have this experience of a person not really wanting to commit to relationships, not really wanting to commit to emotional intimacy, being afraid when, you know, the stakes are higher in relationships and when, you know, more vulnerability and closeness starts to take place. Like if you move from the dating phase of a relationship into the honeymoon phase or power struggle phase, this is where we start to have these challenges or problems. So this is our dismissive avoidance. And on basically the polar end of the spectrum, we have our anxious preoccupied. And this person usually builds a lot of emotional associations in their childhood to closeness being really good. And they usually have attunement and they have a lot of connection to their parents or caregivers, but there's always some kind of element of inconsistency. So this can be that um, both parents are really loving, but they work a lot. This can be that um, you know, one caregiver's, caregiver is really warm another is cold. But basically this creates this pattern of this individual experiencing some form of like, oh my goodness, I want closeness, but I'm afraid of losing it all the time because they get programmed through repetition with that inconsistency for for this fear of emotional abandonment or disconnection. And so this individual grows up in their adult lives and they usually carry these subconscious core wounds around feeling afraid of being disconnected afraid of losing somebody afraid of abandonment or being alone and it's interesting because usually the dismissive avoidant and anxious preoccupied end up in relationships together fairly often Mm -hmm. Um, so you have one person fearing closeness and one person fearing abandonment and there it can really create this push-pull dynamic and then lastly we have our fearful avoidant who sort of experiences both sides of the attachment spectrum. So they experience some of the anxious side and some of the dismissive avoidance side. That's why they're sometimes referred to as anxious avoidant. Um, But there are specific elements where in this individual's childhood, they usually had some kind of either codependency and enmeshment trauma with a caregiver or caregivers. Or there was some kind of trust deeply broken. So it could be, for example, that you know they had a loving relationship with mom, but mom was an alcoholic. And they never knew, like, is mom going to be sober? Is she going to be drinking? Or maybe there was violence in the home or fighting a lot. And so it's like, oh, I want closeness, but I don't trust it. Maybe they have parents who like really take out anger on them, things like this. So this individual has sort of this like, push-pull dynamic with relationships, where they want closeness, they love closeness. And then they fear it at the same time. And that's usually combined with this big fear of of trusting somebody. And so this individual sort of presents themselves in their adult lives and their adult relationships as somebody who is like, come here, come here, come close. And then somebody comes close and like, "No, no, no, back off, get away, stay back. And so they can create this really like hot and cold dynamic in their relationships, which for them is confusing, but especially for partners of them is confusing. And this individual usually has a lot more um, work to do in terms of reprogramming and and healing themselves and their relationships, usually because they've been through a little bit more trauma in childhood. Um, But all of these things are just a subconscious set of rules and patterns and all of them can be reprogrammed.
0: Thank you. That was very thorough and um, really giving a kind of a little bit of a different spin because people have, you know, I've heard just using anxious and avoidant and chaotic, or I think something like that, but I haven't heard it used, you know, described in these terms. Uh, So, you know, I think people who are listening can definitely are probably thinking, okay, I grew up in a home that was similar to this, what do I do? So before we get to what do I do, I, I wanna say that a lot of times people grow up thinking they have a loving home and that everything was great. And I remember a client years ago who wanted to know why she keeps attracting unhealthy partners like narcissistic people who are avoidant, really avoiding intimacy. And we started to look at her childhood and She had a a mother who was sick and she was told, just be quiet. You know, you have to be quiet. Don't disturb mom, get good grades, be a good girl. That was the message at home. So her true self was suppressed and she became a people pleaser, which, you know this codependency and attracting in somebody who was an avoidant. So it's, it's a lot of times people think, oh, but my parents were wonderful. They love me so much, but they don't realize that the underlying subtleties of some of these things.
1: A hundred percent. I What I noticed too is that there's there's three things according to a whole bunch of different research that um, create attraction. So the things that we're actually attracted to in other people, and it doesn't just have to be romantic. But one of them is what our subconscious comfort zone is in childhood. So, for example, you know, the the subconscious mind really wants familiarity because familiarity equals safety, which equals survival. And so, if you grew up in an environment where you know, you're taught your emotions don't matter. Even if that's, you know, your parents are wonderful and they're parenting, you know, in the best way they can, there's always some form of people passing their own traumas down or just challenges that happen in any individual's upbringing. But if you grow up and, and your subconscious mind learns, okay, this is what love and connection and attachment is, then when you, you go into your adult romantic relationships, you're actually subconsciously seeking out those things. And it's interesting because we look and we're like, no, I would never want those things. But you have to remember like the subconscious mind processes a billion bits per second of data compared to your conscious minds, 40 to 60 um, bits per second of data. And so our subconscious is creating this huge map of like what we desire, what we, what we want, what we're seeking. And only a certain amount of that information really reaches our conscious mind, a very, very small amount per second. And so that's one feature that creates attraction. And then people who meet our our needs is another one, obviously. So if you know, you meet somebody who's interested in the same things or, you know, wants, wants the same things as you in life. Like that's a point of attraction. And then also people who express our repressed traits because the subconscious mind wants wholeness and it will seek that out through other people. So if somebody, if we're repressing our boundaries and then somebody's really great with their boundaries or is really assertive and really driven with their boundaries and needs, then we easily fall into these relationships where somebody, it's like a perfect match. Somebody's you know, taking, taking, taking from a relationship and another person is used to giving, giving, giving and repressing themselves. And so we can, if we're not aware of these patterns and how they're working, it's really easy to fall into the traps of these things in our adult lives but they're all there to show us something.
0: Mm. Yeah, that was very well explained. I Again, I think that people really don't see like you know why am I attracted? Why I know this person's bad for me. I, I was just dealing with that this week with a, with another client who doesn't understand why somebody that they're interested in keeps staying with a really unhealthy partner who's abusive. And um, it's so clear to me. You know, it's like you know, knowing what that person's childhood is like was like and you know, you can know something's really bad for you. It's like eating ice cream when, you know, you have gluten, you know, like a, not a, gluten, a lactose intolerance, and you know, you're gonna feel sick afterwards, but it tastes so good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's so easy to, to be in that space. And it's something I've always urged people to look at um, when they're, they're in these traps as well, is I find also that for us, like from sort of like a neuroscience perspective, mm-hmm. if you have a wound, So if somebody, you know, doesn't meet your emotional needs or let's say, let's use the example of criticism because it's really clear. Let's say Mm -hmm. you grew up in a household and you have two very critical parents and maybe your parents think, you know, it's important to be critical because this is how we push you and then you're going to survive out in the world and be okay. So even if it's well-intentioned, let's Mm -hmm. say this creates this painful emotional imprint for this individual. And so they experience a lot of criticism and this criticism is painful. What has to happen For that person to then grow up and then be in a partner with maybe, or be in a relationship with maybe a partner who is emotionally abusive or very, very critical, right? Verbally abusive, extremely critical. And we can look and we can go, oh, well, of course it's because my childhood, I had two critical parents and that was a wound. And then of course I attract that because it's a subconscious comfort zone. But what actually has to happen between childhood and meeting that adult partner is for us to still have that subconscious comfort zone, we still have to have maintained it somehow in the relationship to ourselves. Otherwise, we would have that whole neural paradigm of of neural pathways that are firing and wiring. They wouldn't be able to stay alive. Like neural pathways atrophy over time. So if we are a child, we have all this self-critic, we have all this criticism from parents. If we grew up and then we were super gentle and encouraging to ourselves and we were so nice to ourselves in our internal dialogue, we wouldn't still have that subconscious comfort zone and then we wouldn't be attracted to it in other people. But what has to take place is for us to maintain that and then have that point of attraction. We have to be, we basically have to have internalized that dialogue from parents and it's become our own internal dialogue and we are super self-critical. And then when somebody comes along who's also very critical to us, it's like, oh, this is familiar. And so when we look at things through that lens, like the things that hurt us and other people or bother us and other people, Do we have any of those that we're doing by accident? It's not somebody's fault. It's because they had that imprint in the first place that was probably traumatic or painful. But we have to look and ask ourselves, where are we doing this in the relationship to ourselves? And if we can reprogram that in the relationship to ourselves internally, we will no longer have that point of attraction outside of us because it won't feel comfortable and familiar and safe. It will feel not good. And it will feel like it's supposed to feel in a dynamic, which is unhealthy. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that that's a really important point. You know, the the healing we don't we don't realize that we carry over the voice. I, I have one client who will speak in the voice of her mother often, and then she'll just go, "That's my mother speaking." Mm-hmm. And if she comes into the conversation so often, and it's like she can name it, but it's really hard for her to move past it. It's like she's done so much healing. And you know, definitely had the enmeshment and the codependency, and so much was transferred onto her as a as a very young child, that she's replicated that in every single relationship up until now. And so we're working together to to break that pattern. Um, so let's let's go a little deeper into what that might look like. So how how do we go about healing that voice?
1: Yes. Okay. So. So this is like one of my favorite topics. I get so excited to talk about these yeah. things. <laughs> so, so from personal experience, I grew up very young and, and um, had a lot of stuff in my home and things to work through and things to sort of figure out. And I, I found that a lot of information was was challenging for me as a person to um, to work through. So I um, had a knee surgery at, at 14 and um, actually became addicted to my painkillers at 14 years old and definitely because i had unresolved childhood traumas to work through and didn't realize until later and so as somebody who went and and tried many things it wasn't until i learned about the subconscious mind And how, if we really want to facilitate profound change and lasting change, we have to engage the subconscious mind in the process. And there are many reasons for this, but one of them being that your subconscious mind is responsible for roughly 95 to 97% of your thoughts, feelings, behaviors, emotions, and your conscious mind is roughly three to 5%. So it's like, if you're trying to change at the conscious level, it's, it's, it's a very challenging experience. So. Um, And and another being that the conscious mind cannot outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. It can only reprogram. And so um, what's really important to recognize is that the subconscious mind is reprogrammed through repetition plus emotion. And so when we want to change a pattern, we wanna move through something we're experiencing, we have to choose to consciously create an opposition of the original patterns that exist And we have to do this repetitively and in a way that elicits an emotional response. Now, the language of the subconscious mind are emotions and imagery. And so if you can get into a situation where you are like, let's say you want to change your internal dialogue, okay? And you're like, I want to be less self-critical. So what you would do is number one, it's so important to isolate patterns. Like if we don't know exactly what those patterns are made up of, it's very challenging to to dive into it. So if we say, oh, I'm self-critical, get specific. Like, self-critical about what? What are the patterns? Are you saying I'm not good enough? Are you saying I'm unlovable? Do you beat yourself up for any mistakes you make? Do you find yourself being a perfectionist? Like, what is all of that in there? And and the more clear you can get, the better. And then you want to ask yourself, okay, what are the opposite things that I would like to do. So if I'm critical, what would be the opposite? Like maybe self encouragement, maybe self-compassion, maybe just gentleness and self-forgiveness in the internal dialogue with myself. Um, And you can write out some statements that are really beneficial to sort of see from the other side. So let's say you beat yourself up for making mistakes at work and you go, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm an idiot, I can't believe I did this. Okay, what could, what could you say instead? What's a reframe? So maybe it's, you know, people make mistakes, I'm learning and growing every day, I'm doing my best, these sorts of things. And then what we have to do is every time we see this painful internal dialogue come up, we have to say, cancel, cancel. We wanna interrupt the pattern, it's a neurolingu- neuro-linguistic programming technique cancel, cancel. And then we want to replace it with some form of a cognitive reframe, which is a cognitive behavioral therapy technique. And then we want to lace as much emotion into that statement as possible. And if we can repetitively do this, so if we can look at like why we're smart, why we're looking and we're growing every day, why we're becoming better instead of why mistakes are the end of our job and we're going to be out on the streets or, you know, these things like the more clear we can get, And the more emotion we can bring in and the more repetitively we can do this, we're essentially firing and wiring new neural pathways in opposition to what we would normally do. And we have to reinforce them as much as possible. So we have to use that repetition, use that emotion, which is sort of the glue in a way that holds the neural pathways together. And then we have to let those old patterns atrophy over time. And research shows that within 21 days, we're making some really big progress, And within 63 days, it's almost impossible to go back to our old patterns. These patterns are now working for us on our behalf, as long as we have that consistency.
0: Mm. This is fantastic. So I love how specific and clear you are with how people actually create change. I think a lot of people think that just, I understand it, like you said at the beginning of this, that just getting all this information wasn't enough. And we have to embody, you know, and the body holds such incredible power. And we often neglect our bodies. And I think especially if we grow up with any kind of trauma, the body is not something to be trusted. Emotions are neglected because they weren't safe. And Mm -hmm. so we operate from our minds, right? And by embodying this and really making change and repeating, 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 but getting into the emotions. So many people don't even know what they're feeling. They can't name them. So when you say the emotion, like how, how would you take somebody who's, whose emotions were not safe their whole life? How do they begin to feel safe with emotions?
1: Yeah, I love this question. So sort of from like an attachment style perspective, usually the two attachment styles you'll see who experiences the most are by far the dismissive avoidant and second, the fearful avoidant. And so um, I I take these individuals through an exercise where we have an, an emotions list. It's like all major emotions and their opposites. And what we get them to do is because anything changes through repetition and emotion. So I'll get them to take this emotion list, have like a a little feelings journal, where they track their day. So like nine till 12 when I got to work until lunchtime, 12 until five, five until 10 PM when I went to bed. And we break it up into, into sections and every evening before they go to bed, this is the fastest way to do it. There's other ways of course, but this is the fastest in, in my experience. Um, and what we get them to do is every evening, circle the emotions on that list that they felt most often. And you can find these lists like online for anybody who's listening. Um, and circle the emotions they felt the most often. What I found is that different attachment styles tend to have the same patterns of emotions. So for example, like fearful avoidance will often feel more hurt, anger, frustration, trapped, powerlessness. Um, Dismissive avoidance will often feel more unsafe, agitated, irritable, anxious, afraid. Um, But anyway, so. We get them to like embody and recognize the major emotions they're feeling on a regular basis. And then every evening before bed, practicing, going back through situations and and noticing, okay, nine till 12, what did I feel? And if there are times where there isn't any outstanding emotion, that's okay. You can sort of skip and pick like more charged experiences throughout the day, the ones that are more obvious and then practice. Feeling what that experience felt like. So, in visualization, in going like closing your eyes and feeling like, okay, when I felt really anxious on the way to work, and maybe I was driving and I was in traffic. You know, what did that experience feel like to me? And then we accompany this with a sensations list because all emotions are just a reflection of the mind and the body, and they are made up of physical sensations. So emotions are just, from a very basic perspective, they're just sensations that you're feeling in your body. And so we get them to describe, and you can use this list as like a prompt. So, oh, the anxiety felt like, tightness in my chest or heaviness on my shoulders or like tightness in my throat. And we really get you to get in touch with emotions and their accompanying sensations. And for people who are really, really struggling, you can even skip the feelings journal and you can just think back to challenging moments in your life or times that you felt emotions more strongly and practice getting accustomed to that. And then through that, something that's really important is to, as you see this coming up, as you start getting in touch with these emotions, to reinforce repetitively and let yourself know, I am safe. At worst, I'm just experiencing sensations in my body. This experience is no longer here. I'm completely safe to be here now. I've moved through this. And we get them to just have some affirmative statements that let them know they are safe. They are safe to feel. And the repetition of this over time has amazing results for people because it gets them to start noticing their emotions, being aware of their patterns and emotions are feedback mechanisms. They're only ever showing us when we have unmet needs or when we have painful internal dialogue. So painful beliefs being triggered or painful thought patterns that are a result of those beliefs. And so when we start getting in relationship with our emotions, we suddenly get to use them so much more effectively because we can go, oh my goodness, I feel bad. What is this telling me? What's the need that's unmet and how can I create a strategy to get that need met? Or what stories have I just been telling myself in my mind? Have I been just telling myself, I'm going to be late to work and my boss will fire me and everybody's going to shame me. And, you know, and and we have to be able to question our thinking and meet our needs.
0: Love this so much. This is the majority of the work that I do also. So this is just speaks to my heart and soul. I, I started doing this work actually as I got divorced and I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast that, when I asked for a divorce, my husband had, at the, up until that point, really avoided conflict altogether, walked away from any kind of argument. Um, we just had such terrible way of communication. And the divorce was a catalyst for him to go get help, finally. And he started, it was amazing. Um, he started to study nonviolent communication, which is so tied into identifying feelings and needs, getting really clear without all the judgment, what is really going on. And we started to have incredible conversations that we never could have before where we could talk about stuff was going on. I mean, it wasn't enough to keep us together, but it was a wonderful way to end the relationship. And he now teaches empathy. He has created an empathy labyrinth. That wow. he's taken to places like Cappallo and and other places. <laughs> it's amazing what happened! Oh,
1: goodness,
0: right? <laughs> so
1: incredible! What a beautiful story.
0: Uh, thank you. I mean, I'm so grateful because certainly divorce was that was never on my mind when I asked for a divorce. I didn't expect change, but it was it was such a bonus, and it 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 definitely it affected all of us in the family. I mean, my kids are their feelings are now validated so much more by him and certainly by me, but I also was so out of touch with my feelings and needs. I, you know, having grown up with an an insecure attachment style, I didn't even know what it was, but I couldn't name an emotion uh, other than maybe happy, sad, angry. (laughs) And um, I, I find that, you know, when I talk to a client about feelings, they often will go right to a judgment about the other person you know how do you feel about that well i felt that he was wrong you well, know yeah, right so exactly. it's it's so not tuned in and this work is so essential it it just helps us to also clarify like what you said here about What is going on? And is this a story I'm making up? Like so much of what we feel is based on story. It's based on our triggers from the past. It has nothing to do with the person in front of us. And being able to tell the difference
1: is a
0: game changer, right?
1: Absolutely and it's like my favorite work because this is I we all see reality through this filter of our past programming and what that is is it's our like ego mind or it's our subconscious mind in other words and and we we sort of like reproject our past onto our present moment and until we sort of awaken to that and realize it, it's, it's, we get very seduced into playing out the same imprints and the same responses and the same, uh, you know, frustrations and, and angers. And, and we sort of fall victim to old patterns until we learn to identify and reprogram them. So it's just, this is my favorite stuff in the world. Mm. <laughs> so I nice hear that it's so dear to your heart as well. It
0: Totally. Totally. I, I love it. It's, it's also very empowering to know that you can change, that you don't have to stay stuck in these patterns that don't work and that you're the common denominator, which helps you to know what to do. And it's it's pretty clear. You know, we're talking a couple of months and you can make permanent change for something that you've been doing for decades. I Absolutely. mean, amazing, right? It's like so empowering. And a lot of people just think, oh, I'm, this is the way I am. I, I remember meeting a guy once who was very stuck and he just kept saying, this is the way it is. This is the way I am. And I was just like, I gotta get out of here as fast as possible because <laughs> I so don't believe that. Um, well, this this has just been such a wonderful conversation. It's, it's a new way to look at attachment. And I think the way you've explained it has just been fabulous and I would love to ask you one final question, which I ask all my guests, which is it's kind of a big one. But what are your final words of advice for someone who wants to go on their last first date?
1: Oh, I love this. Um, I would say one of the most important things for your last first date is to treat yourself the way that you would want somebody else to treat you. So not like the cliche treat your treat others the way you would want to be treated, but treat yourself the way you would want to be treated. Because when we do that, and when we show up, if we want somebody to be, you know, to protect us, if we want somebody to admire us or encourage us, if those are the things you want outside of a relationship, if you can give those things to yourself in the relationship to you what you're gonna do, which is really profound is not only then be attracted to the right people who will give you those things because the repetition of that creates a new subconscious comfort zone, which is part of what creates attraction like we were discussing earlier but also we become better receivers at the things that we're comfortable in giving to ourselves. We often without recognizing subconsciously self-sabotage or block or stop ourselves from receiving things that we are out of giving in relationship to self. So if, if we are not good at giving ourselves encouragement or gentleness, forgiveness, these sorts of things, we're not very willing to receive those things from others because that goes against our subconscious comfort zone. So I would really say whatever it is that you want in a partner, make sure that you are excellent at filling your own cup in those areas first, and everything else will follow.
0: I just love that. I, I, you know, back to the example that I gave before of the person who was interested in somebody who's dating somebody who's abusive. She can't end that relationship because she hasn't done the work yet. And she has somebody in front of her that is interested and is kind and secure in his attachment. And expresses emotions beautifully and yet she stays tethered to somebody who treats her the way that one of her parents probably treated her and you know it's it's um she has to do the work you know in order to change the attraction so again we have so much power over these things and it changes our lives It just changes our lives so thank you so much for this amazing conversation Thais and tell our audience uh, how they can find you. And if you have a gift, this is a good time to tell us.
1: Absolutely, so um, we, you can find us at www.PersonalDevelopmentSchool.com. We have a, a free attachment style um, quiz on there. And when you get your results, it comes with a, a four page report on your attachment style and some video content and ways to sort of learn more deeply about how attachment theory um, operates, but specifically at the subconscious level. Um, And then I put free YouTube content on YouTube almost every single day. And that's personal development school dash Skibson. Gibson. So.
0: Okay, great. Uh, Put all this in the show notes.
1: And a big thank you to you. I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. It's been so wonderful.
0: Uh, Same, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening today. If you love our show, please rate and review us. It really means so much to the success, the continued success of our show. Eight years in the running, crazy, Um, but thanks to all of you for listening and, and we hope you go on your last first date very soon. Have a great day.